Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Well, welcome to the Jason on the House podcast. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and I want to give you some hot takes on the news. We're going to highlight the stupid because, hey, you know what? There's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. And then we're going to phone a friend. This time we're going to get uh, John Roberts, uh, not the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, but John Roberts from Fox News. He's got a rich history and in the, the, the world of reporting the news and I'm sure some very uh, unique experiences, and so I use one of our favorites. He's just so such a professional and so good at what he does. Um, we're going to call John Roberts and get his uh, take on life and go through his experiences and kind of what he's learned along the way. So, but let's start with uh, what's going on in the news, and I want to highlight some of the things that are going on in the news that maybe don't reach the top of the food chain. I had the, the honor and privilege last week to guest host for Brian Kilmeade in the Brian Kilmeade uh, radio show. And uh, when you're prepping for a three-hour radio show, you're writing down all the different things you need to talk about. And it was like two dozen things that were were percolating to the top and making all kinds of news. And and I'm sure, you know, by the time you, you know, get to the next day, it's a whole nother list. And that there's just a lot being thrown at us. But there's some things that I think matter more than others in terms of their long-term and um, big, big impact. One thing I want to mention is what's called ESGs. Now, some of you may know what an ESG is and other people may not. Environmentally sensitive governance uh, is something that the Democrats behind the scenes and those who really are passionate about changing the way we do business in this world um, are trying to force their will upon the individuals and corporations of this country. So ESGs, environmentally sensitive governance plans, are being thrust upon corporate America in a way that doesn't allow them to operate as they see fit. It's a way for primarily the left and progressives to take their view of climate change and their view of the Green New Deal and force it into the system. And they do it in a couple different ways. One thing you need to know as background is that the Democrats learned a long time ago that, hey, you know what, it would be really much better if we didn't have to go to Congress every year and appropriate money for these uh, government programs. Because that means that they'd have to be accountable. They have to go to hearings. There's more transparency. There's more ways to have conservatives, you know, manipulate. That's their view of the world. So they came up with this scheme, and that is how do we create a government agency and not have it be accountable to the people, have it not be accountable to the Senate and to the House of Representatives? And so one of the big things that they did is they took these programs and made them mandatory programmatic and don't they bypass Congress. They don't require funding. They're based on a on a formula. So think of Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare. Well, it's about 75% of our budget is mandatory programmatic spending. Congress never touches it unless it changes the law. The other thing that they did more recently during the Obama administration, when they, the Democrats had the House and Senate and the presidency, they put together the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Oh, we're going to protect Americans from their, their themselves with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. The CFPB. The CFPB does not report to Congress. It is a subset of the Federal Reserve. And being a subset of the Federal Reserve, guess what? There is no governance that has oversight with anybody who's elected. None. Zero. But they are appropriated money that we don't even know about. Now, initially, their budget was larger than the Securities and Exchange Commission, but nobody really 
knows how much money, how many employees, or what they do with that money. Because Congress, they could try to hold hearings, but they don't have to answer because they don't report to Congress because they don't get funding from Congress. So part of the CFPB is to, and what the Security Exchange Commission, Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC, is doing is thrusting upon these banks a plan and a need to come up with these ESG plans so that a bank, for instance, may say, well, in order to meet our carbon neutral goals, we are not going to fund any oil or gas or petroleum developments. So when you hear Jen Psaki go up on the podium and say, it is the policy of the United States of America to wean our way out of petroleum products, but the president wants to do everything he can to get the price of gas down. So what we're going to do is we're going to release the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And hey, by the way, um, all of you evil oil companies, why don't you, you know, what you really should be doing is utilizing those permits. You're not utilizing all the permits. Well, the reason you can't utilize the permits is because these ESGs are in place with these banks who won't loan the money in order to develop the projects. I just want to give a bit of a primer and a highlight that ESGs are one of the biggest things that we should be concerned about. It's a way to subvert the public trans, uh, uh, transparency that is there through Congress and the normal appropriations process, and it is fundamentally behind the scenes changing the way we do business. I just need to highlight that. And the other thing that I want to get to on the hot talk, uh, hot take on the news, and this may change before this podcast comes out because I think the blowback is severe, and it should be, is what's going on with mask mandates for toddlers in New York City. It is unbelievable, but a seven-year-old, they don't suddenly still have a mask mandate. But a four-year-old going to school, five-year-old who's maybe going to preschool or first grade or whatever, I can't remember what age first grade is, but it's about that. They do have a mask mandate. There's still a mask mandate to go on airplanes if you're a United States citizen. But if you come across the border illegally, no, you don't need that. Don't worry about it. No mask necessary. Toddlers, yes. Illegal alien, no. Somebody who's uh, seven, no mask. Somebody who's five or four, Yes, do have to have a mask. Is it rooted in science? No. These are political decisions made by some people who I just cannot understand why and how they're making these decisions. But that's the way it is. Those are my hot takes on the news and things that are bugging me this week. So let's move on to the stupid, though, because you know what? There's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. All right, you saw it uh, last week, the Washington Post, New York Times, and certain, certainly social media suddenly had all these revelations about Hunter Biden. Whoa! Hey, that laptop might be real. It's not Russian disinformation, never mind the 51 former senior intelligence officers who came out and said, oh, this must be uh, uh, Russian disinformation. Never mind that social media shut down the Washington Post, or Washington, or the New York Post, and said, you can't post stories about that. These stories can't be true, but something's a brewing. And again, by the time this podcast comes out, maybe they're doing something with Hunter Biden. There's an awful lot of activity going on for a laptop that's been out there for at least a year and a half. So what's going on there? Somebody is doing something really stupid. And it's just hilarious for me to think that the Washington Post said that part of the reason that they didn't reveal this and didn't write about it and didn't give it credence earlier was because they, quote, erred on the side of setting aside questionable materials. Are you kidding me? The Donald Trump lived for, what, four, five years with them harping about all of this Russia, 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 all of which turned out to be false. They're winning awards and all kinds of things, patting themselves on the back, getting their viewership up, saying Russia, Russia, Russia. I haven't heard many apologies for how they treated Donald Trump. I haven't heard any apologies or giving back awards or corrections to the record. Are you kidding me? They made a living and milked millions of dollars out of saying Russia, Russia, Russia. 
Trump, Trump, Trump. And yet it, none of it turned out to be true. And say they say that, oh, well, we didn't give out the information about Hunter Biden because it was questionable. Yeah, they were offering great restraint. No, they were just in on the take and they had a political agenda that was just wrong. All right. And the last point I want to make on bringing on the stupid is the South Carolina women's basketball team. Congratulations for winning the national championship, but shame, shame, shame on the idea that for really the second half of the season, you sat out in the locker room, couldn't get it, couldn't muster enough to stand up, put your hand over your heart and do something that I think everybody should be doing, which is standing true for the United States of America, putting your hand over your heart. That's what's supposed to transcend sports. So the coach got a little irate and thought that uh, her team was being unfairly portrayed by saying, hey, we didn't kneel, we didn't do this, we stayed in the locker room. Well, not showing up for your country and being able to participate in the national anthem. I'm sorry, but that's just stupid, and I hope we call it out every time we see it. And that is bringing on the stupid. All right, now it's time to phone a friend and uh, thrill the call. John Roberts, uh, John Roberts, uh, Fox News. Um, he's just a wonderful human being. You know, I've been privileged to be part of the Fox family narrow for nearly five years and get to know and interact with him, certainly in uh, as, as a member of Congress, but also a part of being on the, the Fox News team. And uh, this is just a wonderful, happy human being. And I'm pleased to, to know him. And I look forward to kind of getting to know him a little bit better and about his upbringing and everything else so let's call john roberts hello john roberts hey this is jason chaffetz uh i hope i didn't catch you at a bad time no there's never a bad time to talk to you jason oh come on listen you've been in washington there's a political answer right there no listen you are uh one of the hardest working guys but you're also one of the nicest guys and very kind of you to join me on the jason in the house podcast so thank you very much well, you're wrong on both of those counts, but I'm happy to join you. <laughs> hey, do you, you know, it was funny when you when you type in John Roberts, you know, uh, the, Washington, D.C. is a good-sized place, a lot of famous faces and people who are impacting our country. Do you ever bump into that, hey, it's John Roberts, and they think it's maybe the other John Roberts that's in town? Does that ever happen? You know, I used to um, when he was first named a justice of the Supreme Court and then the, and then the chief justice. But it's it's kind of um, fallen off a bit, um, and I think it's because he has become so famous <laughs> and me infamous that uh, few people get us mixed up with each other anymore. You never showed up for a dinner reservation, and they said, "Hey, it's John Roberts," and they said, "Oh, oh, he thought it was yes, gonna be the I, other that, John that, Roberts." <laughs> that actually happened, but it only happened once, and it was a long, long time ago. All right, fair, fair enough, but. Uh, um, you are actually a Canadian and a lot of people don't know that you don't really bring on the thick accent. My guess is you could, you could do that if you wanted oh, to hey, but... take off. Hey, like if I wanted to bring on the heavy Canadian accent and go sit on the couch around the house, I could, I could definitely do it. <laughs> the couch. <laughs> yeah. I, I left Canada in 1989, went to Miami and it was in Miami that I, I really lost the Canadian accent. Um, I went a little overboard. It became a Cuban accent for a while, so I, I, I had to sort of switch back and uh, and get the, this that that nice sort of flat Midwestern accent going, which is typical of most broadcasters uh, in this country, at least at, at at the time. But I became an American citizen uh, two weeks after nine eleven. Oh wow! Uh, which was an auspicious time to become an American citizen. I remember being in the. Um, the swearing-in ceremony. It was in Virginia, just outside of D.C. And the judge said, um, I know that there's people here, I think, from 83 different countries. There was about 150 of us. And the judge said at the time, uh, I understand, given the current circumstances, that if somebody doesn't want to take the oath of citizenship, uh, no harm, no foul, you can sit down, you can reapply at some point in the future, we won't hold it against you, as, as typically would happen. And not one person sat down. Everybody proudly put up their hands and, and took the oath of citizenship. It was really a moving ceremony. Why'd you do that? Why did you say, hey, I, I, I want to change my citizenship and no longer be, a, no, and maybe have dual citizenship, but at least be an American citizen? 
Well, it's interesting because when I grew up, and um, this was back in the 1960s and 70s, most of the television that I watched came from across the border in Buffalo, because I grew up in Toronto. So we would always see these advertisements of kids out in the sunshine, in the palm trees, on the beach, whatever, having fun. And I was there in snowbound Toronto. (laughs) I'm thinking to myself, is this really where I want to spend the rest of my life? Or do I want to be with those kids on the beach and in the palm trees? And I, I always thought that it would be wonderful to live in the United States, even from my earliest recollections. And when I finally had an opportunity to do it, I worked for a while uh, on an H-1B visa, and then I became a green card holder. And I just thought, you know what? I'm here to stay. I'm making my living in the United States. This is where I'm going to raise my family. And out of respect for the place that I'm living, I want to become an American citizen. Now, go back to those early days growing up. I don't know, brothers, sisters. Um, we, I mean, was it stereotypical? Hey, we played a lot of hockey and ate up. I mean, what was life like for the Roberts family back in the day? Well, I had a brother uh, who unfortunately passed away in 1981 from cancer, a, a type Sorry of cancer that. now, lymphoma, which yeah. is eminently treatable. But back then it was still pretty new. And unfortunately, he passed fairly quickly because it was in an advanced stage when they finally caught it. I've got a sister uh, who's still around. She still lives up in Toronto. But mine was a fairly typical sort of lower middle class upbringing. My father passed away when I was five and my mother, God bless her, and I told this story in the the Christmas book uh, that uh, the Duffies put out uh, just before Christmas last year, that my mom, um, who hadn't worked since she was in her early 20s, and she was probably 48 when my dad died. Suddenly had to go back to work and become the breadwinner. And, you know, was working jobs where she was making $90 a week and still kept a roof over our heads. Taught me the value of hard work and in a dollar, which is probably a lesson that lasted uh, to this day. But I was playing hockey in the wintertime, lacrosse and baseball in the summertime. Uh, it was a day, it was a time, it was a time. Uh, when kids really were free range, you know, we didn't have helicopter parents who were looking after us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We would get home from school. I was a latchkey kid, by the way, from about the age of seven. Mm-hmm. I would come home from school by myself, go find my friends. We would go out. There was a big uh, area of forest behind our house that led down to a big ravine uh, where there was a river. And uh, we would have adventures all, all all the day long and, and on the weekends. It, it, it really was an amazing place to grow up because we got in touch with adventure. We got in touch with creativity. We built things. We got in touch with nature. I would collect rocks and, and we would uh, watch all the animals playing in the forest. It, it, it wasn't an idyllic um, upbringing, but it was a lot of fun. And I think I, I developed out of that a, a, a real sense of a love for life. And it's a love for life that stuck with me all of these years. I see so many kids today that are stuck on devices and they never go out and they spend all day on the couch and they look depressed. And if you take away their device, they have no clue what to do. But we'd be out riding bicycles. We'd make a, a track in the woods where we pretend that we were motocross racing and we'd build jumps. We'd, uh, we'd, we'd, we'd put together like a, a circus sort of thing or a, uh, a daredevil course where we would take an old slide, you know, old metal slide. We'd set up in such a way where you could jump the bicycle and we'd jump over three or four kids. <laughs> and if you saw kids doing that today, <laughs> you'd probably tell them to cut it out because somebody's going to get killed. But that's what we did. And it was just so much fun. Be- being a kid when I was growing up was just a tremendous amount of fun. And I think the real reason, Jason, is because we didn't have these electronic devices to poison our brain. Yeah, there's so much truth to that. I, I hear you kind of mention each of those little stories, and it reminds me, I, I, I'm not that much younger than you. I'm, I'm a little bit younger, but not that much younger. You're a lot younger than I am. No, no, I, I, I really, I, I uh, but I, I think about that time, and my parents, yeah, we had free reign. I'd come home, I'd put that bologna in the little toaster oven and have the cooked bologna, slap some mayonnaise <laughs> on it, and I'd be on my way until it got dark or I got hungry, and then I'd Nothing just come like home. A- 
Nothing like a bologna and mayonnaise sandwich. Yeah, to, don't to even need the bread. You don't even need the bread. It's just I, <laughs> I figured it out, and then we'd go out and we would play. And I played a lot of soccer, and I played a lot of army men. And I figured out that if I used a magnifying glass, I could burn ants. I mean, I was doing all kinds of things that little kids do, and throwing dirt clods and and finding oh, yeah. frogs and tadpoles. I did all that. We would go to the construction sites and have dirt ball fights. Yeah. It was so much fun. What could go wrong? Yeah, and, and I, wasn't bur- I wasn't burning ants with, with a magnifying glass, but I, I would start leaves on fire, and, and one day coming home from school, I accidentally set the forest on fire. Oh. <laughs> and thankfully, uh, a kid uh, who lived in a house that backed onto the forest happened to be out hosing off his... Uh, patio furniture and brought the hose over and, and put the fire out before the entire forest went up. I love but that you he, say that you accidentally set a forest fire. I accidentally <laughs> set the forest. Now, if it was California or, or if it was Colorado or Utah, I probably would have burned 100,000 acres, but yeah. thankfully it was only about a 10 by 10 square foot patch of leaves. But, but you're right, there was no electronic leash. There was no, it was not, nothing to distract. Now, later on, I got one of those uh, little handheld football games, you know, that you could play you you have three slots and you go up or down or whatever but nothing like the today you know i it's funny our kids are grown my wife and i are blessed to have three kids and they're they're grown and a couple married i'm even a grandpa at this point but oh my gosh yes 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 i am and you know uh, another huge part of my life growing up was music as well um now i've seen this i've seen this with your like your own son but walk us through that because you can actually really play this is like not like when did that happen who who taught you where did you get that bug and how did you learn how to do it I, i got the bug when i heard the beatles for the very first time and i thought oh my god this is the most incredible thing i've i've ever heard and i wanted to be one of those guys and that was the same time that the monkeys television program was out and you kind of felt like everybody's making music why aren't i doing it as well so (laughs) myself and the kid who lived across the street and a few others got together i got an electric guitar for my birthday he had a set of drums we found a bass player and a keyboard player and we played some um not high school dances we played some middle school dances and it was a tremendous amount of fun. And, and this was at the same time where the famous Canadian band Rush yeah. uh, was growing up. Uh, they were a little bit better than we were. <laughs> so they became successful and we didn't. But it was a time in the 1960s when music was just exploding. And everybody wanted to be a part of that scene. And I, I would recall going into downtown Toronto. We'd take the subway in. We'd take the bus to the subway and then take the subway in. And we go to a place a music shop uh, called Long and McQuaid. And we would just sit there in awe and look at all of the PA systems and the amplifiers and the guitars and the drums. And and it it was just this fabulous dream that maybe one day we could become rock stars. Unfortunately, we didn't have the talent to do it. Some of the other kids in the neighborhood did. Uh, One of my best friends is Gil Moore, who is the drummer for the Canadian rock band Triumph. And he, to this day, wow. he's still one of my best friends. And he lived just down the street from me. But you would go through our neighborhood, and four or five garages would be pounding from all of the music that was being made inside <laughs> with all these garage bands. Kids would come home from school, and they'd lay into their instruments and their drums. And it was just such a creative time. And, and I wish that kids these days could transport themselves back to the 1960s because that was such a seminal time when there was so much creativity and so many technological technological advances that were going on. And, and you know, there was a lot of obvious social upheaval uh, in a similar fashion to what we saw in the summer of 2020. Um, it was, you know, a different nature. But it was just such an amazing time where so many different things were happening. And, and we didn't, again had the distraction of these little devices that we hold in our hands that fixate our brains and give us a a dopamine boost. Our dopamine boost came from doing really creative things. And I just, I wish kids could go back to those days. Yeah. So you have aspirations to be Getty Lee back in the day and, you know, kids No, he was a bass player. Alex Lifeson was uh, who I wanted to be. Oh, you, okay. And Alex is a good friend of mine. Oh, right. (laughs) Is it because of the Canadian roots and you just got to know them earlier? How did you guys bump into each other? It's because in, I, 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 you know, it's, it's sort of like um, 
you know, those who those who can do, those who don't teach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sort of if those who can play, those who don't become disc jockeys and play the music. Uh, so I became a disc jockey on Canada's biggest rock radio station, which then led to me doing a television program uh, named The New Music, in which we interviewed all of these bands from around the world. And it was a great time to do it as well, because we had all these fabulous Canadian bands that were coming up. Canadian music until then, there wasn't much going on. There was Gordon Lightfoot and, and Ann Murray and a couple of other people. But then the Guess Who came along, Rush came along, um, uh, Loverboy. Uh, all of, uh, I won't say Nickelback, <laughs> all of these other bands Thank you. came along who were making great music. And then all these bands were coming over from the UK. Uh, I interviewed the police when they played to 200 people. <laughs> I interviewed I interviewed you too when they played to 400 people. Wow. So it was an, an amazing, magical time to be a part of it. And I got to know a lot of these people. And I got to know Alex Lifeson really well. He and I played golf together. Uh, a number of times, and we've remained friends all these years. So when you watch that movie, Almost Famous, um, it was is that a fair depiction of what was going down, or is that just a, just a story off to the side that you don't relate to? You know, in some ways, in some ways it was. It wasn't following one band around. It was following right. a whole bunch of bands around. But I became you know, ch chummy with the guys from Iron Maiden, um, I interviewed Sting a number of times. Uh, he gave me a, a great recommendation for a fish and chip place uh, in London. Um, <laughs> hanging out with a lot of the Canadian bands. Uh, Lemmy and Filthy Phil from Motorhead. Uh, we would, we, we'd pal around with them when they were in town. Bob Geldof and I went out for drinks one day. Uh, you know, um, Terry Nunn from Berlin thought I was cute. <laughs> You know, it's I. Oh, I, and there was a great interview that I did. If I, you know, m might say it was a great interview, and I think it was a really good interview that I did with Joan Jett. And I was on a plane heading for I, I think it was the summit that Biden had with Putin uh, in Geneva, right. and I watched this Joan Jett documentary, and boom, there I was interviewing oh, Joan Jett in like 1979 <laughs> or 1980. So it was a lot of fun. I got to meet so many people when they were just really getting going. And now so many of them are icons of the music business. Well, between Gutfeld and Kennedy, who I thought were really into this. Now, I've seen like Instagram or something like that of you. Maybe it's Facebook. I don't know. Of you playing and playing with your son and whatnot. But I I didn't know it was that in-depth and that core to what you were doing. And where did that initial – I mean, okay, so neighbors are playing and – it seemed like the thing to do, but w was your mom pushing you to this? I mean, no, no, those my, instruments were not cheap along the way either. They they weren't. It, my my brother had an old um, Honer archtop guitar that I I tried to play, and could never get it to make the sound that I wanted to. And for a birthday, my mother, who again made ninety dollars a week, saved up a bunch of money, and from a fellow that she worked with. Bought a 1964, now this was 1968, so it wasn't that old. It's only four years old. 1964 Fender Telecaster. Hmm. Uh, and I, I loved that guitar, except I, I, I didn't know much about it. I had flat-wound strings on it, which would be good for playing country. I didn't have round-wound strings on it, so I never really learned how to play lead guitar. I played a lot of rhythm guitar. And then the most stupid, idiotic, dumb thing I ever did was when I was 18, I was working at a radio station outside of Toronto, and every Tuesday night we'd get together for a bluegrass night. We'd get together in a guy's kitchen, drink beer, because the drinking age at that time was 18 in Canada, and I didn't have a guitar to play, but I did have a guitar. I just needed to get an acoustic guitar. So I took this Fender Telecaster to a local music shop in Oakville, Ontario, and the guy totally ripped me off. He gave me 200 bucks for it, and he gave me some cheap 12-string guitar that didn't last very long. The, the neck went boing on it, and I eventually had to trash it. That, that guitar, that Fender Telecaster that I traded for that $200 piece right. of junk is now worth about $18,000. <laughs> I can tell you're still upset about it, too. Oh, I, I am. I am. I'm still upset about it. I still kick myself in the rear every time I think about it. And I've actually tried to trace it down, 
and 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 see if I can find it. Oh, I have no idea <laughs> where it went. But I did kind of replace it. I, I replaced it with a 1966, which is not as good because the 1964 was before CBS bought Fender, and that was kind of the year for the Fender Telecaster. Um, so I wish I could get it back, but I likely never will. So you're real. I mean, it obviously impacted your life. I can tell just the passion that enters into your voice when you start talking about this. And, you know, I've, I've thought you need to learn reading. We need to learn writing. We need to learn arithmetic, but I really do think we're selling kids short. If we don't also inject a degree of creativity in their education and, and music, my wife's very musical. Our kids are musical. I'm really not. I'm the guy that actually listens to the music. Um, I, I just never grew up playing it, and I wish I really had. I think I took a couple piano lessons, but I convinced mom that that wasn't my future, and I certainly can't sing. So, But, I, I but, look but let at me the, ask you this question. Do, do mm-hmm. you now kick yourself and wish that you had have continued with your piano lessons? Oh, yeah. No, I don't. That, I, I wish I'm – I think I really missed out on something that would be – fun and creative and engaging Join the 195 million other people who say exactly the same thing i agree and and this is what i say to my kids my son's a great drummer but he never practices he hates practicing but Mm -hmm. he's got so much innate talent my daughter likes to play the piano but hates to practice Mm -hmm. and i my older daughter Try to make her take piano lessons. Daddy, I don't want to take piano lessons. Okay. (laughs) To a person, they're all saying, I wish that I had have stuck with piano lessons. So I'm not giving the kids a break. Our daughter um, at my uh, mother-in-law's memorial service in in San Diego in February, uh, as part of the memorial service, played and sang Let It Be on this Mm. grand piano in this beautiful church uh, with the sun shining through. And she nailed it. And it was she blew the place away, mm. and yet she doesn't want to practice. <laughs> and I just, you've got so much talent, you use it. Well, Daddy, no, I, I'd rather play. I'd rather play Roblox on my iPad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it. I do. I. I think uh, our country, and I'll add Canada into that as well. But any any society, I think, is missing out without kind of forcing the issue and say, you know, it's part of what I think makes America great is that we are able to take some highly technical issues, but add a degree of creativity to it to come up with that next whatever it is. But it's that combination, this is my take on it, of 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 creativity that gets mixed with the technical side that yeah. then creates the next whatever great thing that comes out. And... Um, and, and- and That's so why I think school curriculum has to change, and and it is, you're not well rounded enough unless you go through that as well. Yeah, and and you know um, until recently that's sort of almost been the sole purview of, of the United States, the way that we mixed creativity with learning. But now yeah. other countries are doing it, and they're doing it really, really well. Uh, take a look at South Korea. Uh, you know, kids are into music. They're into sports. Uh, they're uh, their score, their test scores are off the charts. Uh, you look at you know Chinese kids who play musical instruments. They are so disciplined that they're becoming the best instrumentalists in the world, and they're getting terrific marks. and And we need to, as a society, remember where we came from, and and not let the narcissism of social media override everything else. Because it it is Jason, and I am so terrified. <clears throat> for the future of America's children, because it's it's all about instant fame without putting in any work to get it done. You make a TikTok video, it goes viral, suddenly you're a huge star, and you've contributed absolutely nothing to society. You've contributed nothing to your own uh, development. You've just, you've suddenly become famous. And every kid in this country now wants to become famous with without putting in Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours to do it. Yeah, it's like, oh, I'm going to be an influencer. And I just, I think, oh my goodness, no, no, you're, you're really not. And, and I get a lot of younger people who say, all right, hey, look, I really want to get into politics and I really want to, uh, you know, I want to run for office. And they said, so what do I do? And my advice to them inevitably is 
don't go into politics. If you want to actually contribute to the world of politics and public policy, you need to go out and have another experience that has absolutely nothing to do with politics and then draw upon that 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 experience and then bring that to the table. That's what you go do it for 10 or 20 years, then go run for a public office. Don't think you're going to be the youngest person ever. And I see some politicians today and I think you have nothing to lean on. You've been in public policy in public office or in a, a supporting role for too long and you have no perspective of how things actually work. It's the same thing in our business. You, you talk to most young people who come out of these um, journalism schools Mm-hmm. We, with rare exception, there's still some journalism schools that really teach good journalism. But for the most part, the kids come out. What do you want to do? I want to be a, a news anchor. Oh, well, what experience do you have in being a news anchor? Well, nothing, but I want to be on TV and I want to read scripts and I want to be a news anchor. Well, why don't you try going and covering City Hall for a couple of years? And then why don't you go uh, cover your state capital or, or whatever? Yeah. And then why don't, you, why don't you go cover three or four wars and then maybe be a foreign correspondent for a while, get a wealth of experience so that when you're sitting on the anchor desk, you know what the heck you're talking about. And then we'll talk about you becoming an anchor. Yeah, you know, I, I interviewed uh, Sandra Smith, your your colleague there, and her background in terms of financial markets and business markets and what her dad did and their early education. Mm-hmm. And it's unbelievable. I mean, she was as honed and as talented and as experienced by the age of, say, 30 as most people are in their 50s. It was yeah, unbelievable got the a, experiences she had. She's, and got she tremendous can lean amount of, she's got a tremendous amount of experience. She's got a facility with economics that I could only hope to have. And, and that's why I think one of the reasons why she and I complement each other so well is I've spent a lot of time covering politics. She's covered politics. I've been a White House correspondent. She... You know, has been in business. Uh, I've been to a number of wars around the world, so I, I get that part of it. And we both bring our individual experiences to the table. And I, you know, it's sort of the you know the 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 whole is greater than the sum of its parts, which for a, a news program I think is a great thing to have. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of a conversation with John Roberts right after this. All right. So early on, you become a DJ. What did you go by? What was your what would, did you have a handle that was, or was it just like J.D. Roberts? What, what did you go by? Uh, well, in, initially, um, it was just John Roberts, and then I joined this rock radio station, and they said you've got a you've got a choice uh, because we want to shorten your name, we want to make it a little snappier. So you could either be J.D. Roberts because we like the initials, or you could be Long John Roberts. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I'll yeah. take the JD, please. <laughs> All right. So we were moments away from going live to the White House with Long John Roberts. We were that yeah. almost happened. You know, I'm wondering if, you know, there's a certain pirate aspect. <laughs> it might have had some cachet. Yeah, maybe. Arr. Yeah. Arr. <laughs> uh, OK, so you, you do that. And then what was your kind of bigger break? What what kind of made you jump and, and kind of, okay, wow, I, I have well, made a leap here that most don't make. And why do you think that happened? Well, initially, I, you see, I always wanted to be a disc jockey. And when I was in college, there was a radio station. And I was playing records on the radio station. Then I thought, you know what? I was going to go to medical school. And I thought, oh, I really like this broadcasting thing. Let me try it out. So I sent a bunch of letters to radio stations around southern Ontario. And I got on my motorcycle and sort of did a circuit. Uh, of doing auditions and they always had me reading news and I said to them I I don't want to do news I want to be a disc jockey well we don't have any openings for disc jockeys right now but you've got a great voice and a great style why don't we get you to read the news so my first jobs in radio were as a newsman and I would go out and I'd cover city hall or you know whatever happened I remember a a plane crashed a small plane crashed I covered that Uh, I would cover the issue of the big ferry that goes between Tobermory and Manitoulin Island Uh, there was some controversy with that I covered that when I was in Owen Sound and then I finally got a chance to be a disc jockey got to the biggest rock radio station which would have been Canada's version of of WABC or WLS Uh, 
and and I did that for a number of years, a couple of years, and then started this music program, which then led to Canada's version of MTV. And I sort of saw the clock ticking. I was in my mid-20s, and I thought, you know, I know that this music thing is not going to last forever. Because, remember, that was in the days when Pete Townsend said, hope I die before I get old. And, and now you see the Who's going back out on tour again. Yeah. You knew that they'd last that <laughs> For their long. final reunion tour, yes. So exactly. maybe I was Yet a bit again. premature, but, I, but I, I thought that there was a finite window with this music thing. So I thought, you know what? I, I started in news. Uh, let me come full circle and go back to that. And so I, the television station that had the music channel also had a fairly substantial news division. I went back into that, um, anchored the late evening news, and then I got a call from an agent in New York who said, uh, you know, really like your stuff. Uh, people have been talking about you. would like to shop a tape around uh, in the States. And I said, I thought, let me just find out what people think of me. So I got a call back about three months later after I thought, oh, this is going nowhere. And they said CBS just bought a, a television station. It's an owned and operated station in Miami, and they'd like to make you their main anchor. And I thought, wow, this is great. So, Miami, uh, the, the palm trees that you were dreaming of. The palm trees in the beach. There it was. Yes. So I jumped and I went down to Miami. I had a couple of bad experiences. My ex-wife uh, got robbed at gunpoint in our garage after being there oh, for about 10 days. 10 she days? She left in yeah, wow. 10 days. Uh, so then I moved back up to Canada, did a morning show in Canada, and moved back to New York uh, at CBS Network and then became chief White House correspondent and then left CBS, went to CNN, and then ended up at Fox. And um, this is the best place I've ever worked. I just, I love it here. It's fantastic. What, what, why do you, I mean, the voice is one thing, reading is one thing, um, but what, 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 there are a lot of people that want to do what you're doing. It's an enthusiasm for, for the stories. Um, and it's an enthusiasm for wanting to keep people informed. I think that's what really drives me. Whether it's politics, whether it's covering a war. Um, you know, I went to the war in Israel in 2006, and that was an unbelievable experience. Hmm. You know, I nearly died five, five or six times, but it was just, it was incredible to be there during that time. I went to Iraq three times. Uh, I was in Belgrade during the Kosovo War, so I was getting bombs dropped on me. I was there the night the Chinese embassy got uh, got bombed. Uh, so I, I did the war thing, I've done the politics thing. I just, I, I love the stories and the storytelling. And one of my favorite things, and I think this is one of your favorite things too, is to expose the hypocrisy in our system. Yeah. When people say one thing and they do another, or they try to tell you how to live your life yeah, those are the stories that I really love, and I think those are the stories that the Fox News audience really gets into as well. No, I I do, and I, I, I feel like, hey, look, they when I served in Congress, that they empowered me to go spend all of my time, which they would have probably done themselves if they had had a chance to get elected, and use those resources and all that time and then be able to expose it because the number of people who go out and say one thing and you just know that they're not telling the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. You know, that's something that, you know, between myself and Trey Gowdy and John Radcliffe and a whole bunch of others, uh, James Langford, that we all kind of had a passion for and mm -hmm. and um, and get you fired up to get up and get after it every single day because you feel like, gosh, you know. The world's out there against you, but uh, there are a lot of people rooting for you and counting on you to, to get it and to get it right. You know, in my business, there are a lot of people who want to be on TV because they want to be famous. But I, I, the reason I want to be on TV is because I think we've got a lot of information to impart to our viewers and a lot of things to tell them. And, and I've got a, a lot of great contacts and our contributors are always emailing me ideas or I'll for example, I'll see Nicole Sapphire tweet something. Mm -hmm. And I love Nicole because she's she's got a, a great unfiltered point of view. She she really says what she believes. She doesn't care what anybody thinks. And I love having her on TV to talk about it. And she really does believe that there's a tremendous amount of hypocrisy in public policy when it comes to coronavirus. And I, because I was pre-med in college, uh, really appreciate 
the fact that she's willing to go out on a limb and say things like that. So I'll, I'll see a tweet from her in the morning and she and I'll start chatting and we'll work up a segment and get her on TV. I just I love the work from that perspective where you can impart information to people where they say, oh, my gosh, I didn't know that. Wow. I really learned something today. Wolf Blitzer from CNN is a former colleague of mine. I, I love Wolf to death. He's a great guy. And his mantra, and I really think it's a great one, is learn something new every day. Come home from work smarter than when you went into work. And, and that's, that's how I live my life. Yeah, I had a I had a great experience with Wolf Blitzer as well. I just, you know, I gravitate, I guess, to the people who just like Nicole Sapphire. Nicole's a great example mm -hmm. of somebody who's highly Marty talented, McCary too. Yeah, done 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 their homework, understand it infinitely better than I ever would, but just call balls and strikes as they see them, and yeah, that, exactly. that's what I think of Bear. I think that's what the I think the reason why people say, oh, the Fox audience is so big and they never understand it and they never take time to try to understand it but i think what they appreciate is that they do really try to give a balanced view and say hey here's what people are saying on both sides but that they find those people that just call balls and strikes as they see them coming across the plate and they're straight with people they don't sugarcoat yeah. it they say this is what i think and this is what's going on from my perspective and and what an amazing example of that this hunter biden stuff is yeah. year and a half ago people were calling me a conspiracy theorist uh <laughs> and you know a faux journalist you know whatever because we were chasing the story that miranda divine uh so amazingly broke regarding this laptop and everything that was on it we were denigrated we were we were told that we were not journalists that we were just floating conspiracy theories and now of course it turns out it's true yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the washington post and the new york times have suddenly acknowledged that and i think what they're trying to do is they're playing a little cya here because if the justice department comes comes up with something they're now on record as saying oh there's some there there whereas before they were saying oh no this is russian disinformation so you know as i kind of departed and and trey gowdy and i don't want to put too many words in his mouth but we both talked publicly about this i mean i spent more time with trey gowdy along the way than i did my wife sadly i he and i were on judiciary <laughs> committee together we were on the oversight committee together I played golf with him he's a good golfer oh he's he's a way good golfer he's like a what is he a one has handicaps like a one yeah, yeah. yeah um good. and um but you know he had a passion for for truth and justice and 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 all of that and i'd say the same about john radcliffe too but I think one of the biggest frustrations I had leaving Congress is the lack of intellectual curiosity by the so-called mainstream media. It's just, I had stories and insight and had done things at the oversight committee that I know were newsworthy, but mm -hmm. the, the lack of enthusiasm, but then the moment Donald Trump became the president, oh my goodness, they suddenly had all this enthusiasm and it just drove me absolutely nuts. It, it just was so unbalanced and unfair and so obvious that they had a political agenda. I, I, I think I think to some degree it's subconscious. Among many people who work at these organizations, it's subconscious. Among some, it's very overt and it's very agenda-driven. Because I can remember when I worked at other news organizations, it was kind of a subtle thing that if a Democrat said something, oh, well, they they they... they it, it must be legitimate because they're telling the truth about this. Whereas if a Republican said something, oh, they have a political agenda and be skeptical of everything that they say. It was just kind of ingrained in the culture. And I was too naive at the time because I was fairly new to American politics. I was giving people the benefit of the doubt at, at that point and didn't really realize the inherent bias that was in these news organizations. And it wasn't until I came to Fox and saw the other side of it that I looked and I, and I said, some of these people who work in these organizations are actively working against a, an entire wing of American politics and, and, and American ideology. When you look at how closely split this country is, you're working against half the country, whereas we're trying to work for the entire country and say, look, you know, this is what's being said on one side. This is what's being said on the other side. You make up your own mind about about who's right. And we get dinged sometimes for 
holding Democrats' feet to the fire when the other mainstream media won't do it. Uh, but I think that's the way to do it, is you've, you've got to look at both sides and, and be skeptical. Now, I had, I had a little bit of a back and forth with Rick Scott on Fox News Sunday the other day when I read to him parts of his plan, uh, his Republican plan for the midterms. And he said, oh, those are just Democratic talking points. And I said, well, forgive me, Senator, with all due respect, but I just read two parts of your plan. Those aren't talking points. Yeah. So, you know, I equally hold both sides' feet to the fire. Well, and that's what it takes. I mean, it takes good people on both sides of the aisle. I don't think one party has a monopoly on good ideas or the smarts in order to get it done. But, you know, you do sort of – it's an interesting phenomenon because I – I just really do believe that we need good people on both sides who earnestly go out there and participate and are willing to take some pain. You know, it just bothers me, for instance, in the United States Senate and in the House as well. They, you know, Nancy Pelosi once said something where she said, um, I'll never bring a a vote to the floor unless I already know the outcome Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to ever lose a vote. And I'm thinking, no, that's just wrong. That, it's not the job of a speaker or the majority leader to bring a bill to the floor of the House or the Senate and always win. It, it, there's something to let's vote. And if we lose, we lose. But let's have the vote. That's that's what drove me nuts is it was all I remember, predetermined. I remember a time in American politics and it wasn't that long ago where the two sides had their own ideas about how things should go. But they found enough common ground that they could actually get things done you know remember i think new, most people would actually working together with bill clinton they, they actually yeah. got things done but we don't do that anymore it's become such a zero-sum game and and i think social media has driven a lot of it as well i mean See, i don't mean to be down on social media but i am down on social media <laughs> i think social media is ruining the fabric of this country i really do yeah people are the, yelling at each other all the time it's just it's it's insane the, the best thing that Elon Musk could do is up his 15% share in Twitter to 100%, put the whole thing on a rocket, and fire it into space. <laughs> put on one of those SpaceX vehicles and shoot it off into outer space and say, no, all takers, we're done here. I'm serious, or, Jason. It's, social media is ruining America. No, they look that the colleagues that I used to work with and spend time with said it's just unbelievable. People are more concerned in Congress on how they look on Instagram and Facebook than they are in actually reaching out their hand and working hard on both sides to get stuff done. And I think it's there's insane. a lot of truth to that. I think there's the, the, a lot the, of truth. And it's not the problem. Good. The problem solvers caucus should be a model for American politics. Instead, it's seen as some fringe organization of a bunch of wackos who actually want to work together. I mean, come on. Yeah, they, there's there's a whole nother podcast we could do about how to fix Congress. That's that's for oh. sure. But the social media and finding the right balancing, it, it goes full circle to what we talked about at the beginning here with our kids. You know, yep. I, I we happen to live in Utah, so we can get up in the mountains and our kids will say, oh, we don't have any reception up here. And <laughs> and I, dad is over there driving the car just with a big, huge smile. I think, yeah, this looks like the perfect spot, doesn't it? Isn't like, that great? Yeah. My yeah. son and I went on a, uh, a, a retreat. Um, for uh, the Catholic Church uh, that we go to. And we had to leave our devices in our cars and we couldn't use them for the entire weekend. <laughs> and he and I had the best time. It yeah. was amazing. Yeah, I think the best trip I took with our son, Max, is grown and an attorney now and the whole bit. But when he was a teenager, I took him fishing in Alaska and there was no phone. And uh, it was, you know, six, seven days of uninterrupted fishing, looking at bears, finding moose and just having a good time. So six or seven days. Wow. I did it for I did it for like 36 hours (laughs) and couldn't figure out how to order a pizza. (laughs) I appreciate your discipline in doing it for an entire week. That's amazing. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more right after this. All right, I we're almost done here, but I got to ask you the rapid question. So I don't care how sure. many people, how many wars you've been in and and covered and done all that. You you have not properly prepared for these rapid questions. Are you ready? Yeah. What was your high school mascot? Uh, we didn't have a mascot. You didn't have a mascot. Is that a Canadian thing? You didn't have a mascot? Yeah, we did not have a mascot. Oh wow. 
All right, that's that's interesting. Okay, at least uh, not that I can not that I can remember. Who who was your first celebrity crush? Young John Roberts, growing up, saying, "Oh my goodness!" Oh, of course, it was Marsha from the Brady Bunch. Oh yeah, well she was she was very worthy. That would, yeah, I, I think that, one of my ba- my favorite things I got to do in Congress when I uh, I went to some fancy black tie event, and I got to meet Florence Henderson, and my ooh. wife and I were just starstruck that Mrs. Brady was at this event and she could not have been nicer. She spent time with us. I gave her my card. She sent us scripts and photos for all of our kids. And I, I was so starstruck, but Marsha was, isn't that nice when you meet somebody that you've looked up to and they're actually nice. Cause yeah, I remember, you know, I've met a lot of remember, people that, yeah, that aren't so cool, but she was uh, just perfect. I remember meeting James Caan once. And he was such a jerk to me. Oh. <laughs> but that was his character. Was he in character or was he just kind of no, a jerk? No, he wasn't. He was just a jerk. <laughs> All right. The other one was we went to this thing, and it was the same event, actually. And I sat down, my wife and I, again, black tie event, turn over to my right shoulder, and there's Julia Roberts. Ooh. And, and uh, my wife's name is Julie. And so I said, I can't miss this. So I stood up. The show hadn't started yet. I introduced myself and I said, this is my wife, Julie. And she stood up, Julie Andrews, the Julie Andrews. And she said, oh, my name is Julie. Oh, my gosh. My wife (laughs) thinks that is like of all the things in Congress, that was the coolest moment that she ever had. That that was there was I had a moment like that with my ex-wife. I was hosting uh, the United Nations Association event where they were honoring uh, Muhammad Ali and Paul McCartney. And my ex-wife's name was Michelle. And I met Paul McCartney and I said, uh, and this is my wife, Michelle. He goes, oh, I wrote a song about you. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that would if I had to come up with a list of 10 people I'd love to hang out with, I think he'd be definitely on that list. He He was uh, he was. Yeah, he was a cool guy. I'm a big fan. Um, Favorite vegetable. Um, Favorite vegetable. Um, I I, I love uh, I love cauliflower. Cauliflower and Brussels sprouts. You, you you have passed a test that most of the people I interview, most of them can't name a vegetable. So that, that's impressive <laughs> like, that you actually came up with two. Well, I just, yeah, I just think that I, I cook a lot of cauliflower and I, I love uh, cooking Brussels sprouts with uh, heavy balsamic uh, oh, yeah. reduction. Yeah, they're yeah. delicious. I, I I actually am a fan of of the Brussels sprout. I, I love it. And my 11-year-old daughter's a fan of Brussels sprouts. Really? She loves them too. Oh, yeah. Eh, she likes her dad. Um, so if you met Bigfoot, what would you ask him? Is he real? <laughs> you just ask him, are you real? Is that what you do? And- well, my assumption would be that Bigfoot wouldn't speak English, so I don't know why I'd ask him. <laughs> All right. That's uh, fair enough. Uh, do you have pets growing up? Uh, I did. Yeah, I had dogs. Oh, your dog and, guy. and a cat and a cat once. Yeah, that's about what I did. I was so allergic to cats. We had an outdoor cat named Flower, but longtime dog. I'm I'm definitely a dog guy. But uh, all right, uh, life's most embarrassing moment. Life's most embarrassing moment. Uh, life's most embarrassing moment for me was during the 2008 campaign when I was doing the morning show on CNN. And I was so sleep deprived and so exhausted, I forgot Hillary Clinton's name. <laughs> Couldn't come up with the title or anything. <laughs> Nothing. It was just. <laughs> There's you know, a the, video we got to go find. Somebody at yeah, Fox, there, let's there, find this video. There That's is gotta somewhere. Be, yeah. I think my favorite is Tucker Carlson falling asleep during a Fox and Friends interview. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that video, but it's pretty not. funny. I have not. Uh, it, it, the, what's so great about it is he just owns it. He he just says, he doesn't try to cover it up or he's like, I'm so sorry. I'm just really tired. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, he was doing the week. Was... He was doing working all week, but he was doing Fox and Friends weekend and he actually fell asleep for a moment. <laughs> it, it's pretty it funny. Frightening. It is frightening what happens to the human brain when you're asleep deprived. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. I, I those signs, remember Hillary Clinton's name. Those signs you see on the highway, you know, drug, you know, 
pull over if you're drowsy. That's so true. That is absolutely true. We should have had those in the studio. <laughs> yes, exactly. All right. So if you could meet one person and you say, hey, you know what? We're going to hang out. We're going to have a little dinner and bring the family. We got one guest coming tonight, dead or alive. Who's that one person you'd love to come over and just break bread with and have a conversation? George Washington. Oh, very good. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to find out how you start, how you win a war and start a country. He's amazing to me that the height of the power, he just walks away and says, look, it's now it's yours. Now take care of it. Yeah, And he, he's it. amazing that way. Uh, unique talent nobody knows about. We know about your musical prowess, but there's got to be something else that John Roberts can do that not many people know. Um, I can string a lacrosse stick. Really? Wow. Yes. All right, that's impressive. In, in, in many different ways. <laughs> is there is there wrong ways and right ways? I, oh, yeah, I don't know. There are there are horrible ways to string a lacrosse stick. <laughs> to, to get to get to get a pocket that is just right, that's got just enough hold, just enough whip. It, that that is. My wife says to me, "You're obsessed," and I said, "Some people knit. I string lacrosse sticks." <laughs> <laughs> All right, that is a unique talent, and nobody did know about that, and I appreciate you sharing that. Um, big yes, question. if anybody needs a lacrosse stick, strong, just get <laughs> Look them. out, they're going to start coming. Um, pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I love oh, Hawaiian John, pizza. John, uh, we were on a I'm roll sorry. here. I'm don't sorry. Ju- don't judge. I uh, love it's got to be a Canadian thing. I can understand the ham or the no, back No, it's a bacon. Hawaiian thing. Hawaii is in the United States. I, I know, it's but you don't put a wet fruit on a piece of pizza. You just don't do that. <laughs> you put it on with bacon and ham. and uh, Put it in a bowl Jason. off to the side. Freshen your palate after you eat the pepperoni pizza. I get that. But together, <laughs> doesn't make sense. Uh, I love pineapple on pizza. I'm sorry, but we're very disappointed here. The judges do not like this answer. <laughs> uh, what's your take on the UFOs? Yes? Uh, no? Hope, what's going on I, there? I hope that they're real. I can't imagine, I cannot imagine that in this universe of Carl Sagan's billions and billions of stars that we're the only ones. I mean, you can believe in creationism, you can believe in evolution, but whether it's creationism or evolution, I can't believe that God only made one of us or that if you believe in evolution, that only one of us evolved. There's got to be other life out there in the universe. And hopefully uh, they're not screwing it up as badly as we are. No kidding. I I think I'm with you. And And hopefully uh, they don't have social media. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They've figured out how to get past that. Um, John Ratcliffe, who is the director of national intelligence, our senior most intel person Mm -hmm. in the country. is a very good friend. And after he left, I said, cut John, look, I, you know, I don't want you to break any confidences and you know, you got classified clearance, but the UFOs, I know you've seen all this stuff. What's going on there. And he's like, can't say and i'm like oh come on you gotta tell me something and he's like do, do no i, I cannot you... say anything and i'm like oh really like can you give me a hint he's like no i can't do i believe that ufos do i believe that life from another planet has visited this planet no i don't but i do believe that there's life elsewhere in the universe yeah, I just don't know. And that's what's fascinating. There are too many unexplained things, things that make you go, hmm, with all the sensors and the, the one thing going under the water and like going, uh, it's just, it's fascinating to me. It'd be I, interesting. I, think if, I think if UFOs were actually visiting us, they would have let us know. But when you look over history, and you know, I remember as a kid watching the movie Chariots of the Gods, and when you look over history of some of the things that were built in this world, the technology to do it didn't exist at the time. Yeah, the like technology the pyramids? didn't exist to build the pyramids. Yeah, I, I visited the pyramids. I actually, maybe I shouldn't admit this, but I actually took a piece of the pyramid with me when I left. <gasps> when I was, have it somewhere in close proximity of where I sit. Oh, and why don't you um, go to the Smithsonian and take a piece <laughs> of a moon rock too while you're at it. Yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that. But I was in my <laughs> teens, you know. Discretion for a little teenage indiscretion. Anyway, uh, but the pyramids, uh, you get there and you see them and you understand that there are something like a million of these of these stones. You're like, what? How did that happen? Well, how nobody did they can get explain the stone, it. How did they get the stone up to the top? What about the plains of Nazca in Peru? What, why, why were those images made? 
What yeah. about Stonehenge? Nobody's been able to fully explain Stonehenge. Yeah, it's it, it does make you think. It does make it does. you go things that make you go hmm. hmm. It's a good song, like like pineapple on pizza. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. That had to be an accident. <laughs> Nobody did that on purpose. Uh, I got two more big questions. Uh, actually, three. Uh, favorite menu item at Taco Bell? Um, I've never been to Taco Bell. <laughs> okay. That, there's something. We're, I mean, Washington, D.C. does not have a lot of Taco Bells. I'll give you that. And maybe no, they're doesn't. not that big in, in Toronto. I, I, I did live but in, you've I traveled did live, the world, Taco I Bell. Live, I, I, I'm sorry. All right. Well, I'll, I'll work to ask help solve my, that. Ask me my favorite menu item at Chick-fil-A. I could, I could tell you that. What is, what is John Roberts' favorite menu item at Chick-fil-A? I, I like the spicy chicken sandwich with the waffle fries and a medium vanilla milkshake. <laughs> and I like the peach milkshake during the month of May. <laughs> Very good. We're going to have to take you to Taco Bell. We're going to solve this because I can't wait to get it on just, my social media, I which I know you can't wait for. I don't like chihuahuas. <laughs> I'm a golden retriever guy. Yeah, but a chalupa is there's something special about it. We'll get you there. Yeah, you know, uh, Chipotle. I'm I'm good at Chipotle. I've just I've never been to Taco Bell. All right. Uh, I may have lied. There may be one more than two questions. Uh, favorite childhood toy. Um, you mean like really young child? Mine was Stretch Armstrong, so that's the one I came up with. So I I had a plastic fire truck when I was three years old. That was my favorite toy. Oh, did it shoot water? Um, no, it didn't. But it had a ladder on it that would extend. Yeah, that's cool. And, All right, and then my favorite. Then, then my favorite toy is a is a, a like six, seven, eight years old was a slingshot. <laughs> Always things they ask. I loved uh, those things and uh, dirt clods. I just couldn't get yeah, enough of I mean, clothes. you know, a dirt clod was better than any toy you could ever find in <laughs> any toy store anywhere. Exactly. Uh, all right, you last question. throw it, it would explode when it hit in a cloud of dust. It was the perfect thing. Oh, especially if, if it hit, hit your buddy. If you hit your friend square in the forehead <laughs> with it. Awesome. All the better. <laughs> best advice you ever got. Uh, best advice I ever got was from my mother, who said, Look after the pennies, and the dollars will look after themselves. Uh, wise words from somebody yeah. who was yeah. working hard and probably gave more sacrifice to you and your family than you'll ever know. And, um, you know, the generations that go before us, I, I really, the older I got, the more I wish I had spent time with those people, you know, the my grandfather and all these people that really impacted my life. But I wish I just had a little bit more time with. I would, you, know, you know why all those people were so great? Because they didn't have social media. <laughs> there's a common denominator in all of this. If there's one thing we've learned today, it's that Brussels spouts are good. That's a universal truth. That Taco Bell is underrated because you haven't tried it. And that uh, social media, not such a good thing. <laughs> not such a good thing. Uh, John Roberts, uh, can't thank you enough. Thanks for the great work and all the reporting that you have done for so, so long. Um, it's been my honor, privilege to get to know you uh, a little bit. And thanks for just being so candid today on the Jason and the House podcast and sharing your, you know, what you've gone through in life and your experiences. And it's been a lot of fun. So thanks for joining us. I'm honored to have you as a colleague. Oh, thank you. Again, I can't thank uh, John Roberts enough. Very generous with his time. Fun guy to hang out with and certainly knows an awful lot of musicians along the way. What a great time to just be hanging out. I can't even imagine interviewing the police when they played in a concert with 200 people in the arena or or you two when they had like 400 people what a cool time and uh just a great guy you can see why he's so successful and everything that he does and certainly on fox news so john roberts can't thank him enough and uh, thanks for joining us on the jason in the house podcast you can go over to foxnewspodcast.com find other podcasts but i hope you rate it i hope you subscribe to it i hope you like it uh, i hope we give you a little different perspective then uh, just the drumbeat on everything that's happening in news. Get to know people a little bit better and why they believe what they believe. So hope you join us again next week and look back at uh, the podcast we've been doing over the last, oh, I don't know, almost a year now. So, um, And I hope you enjoy it. I hope you join us next week. I'm Jason Chaffetz. This has been Jason in the House.